Welcome to Creating Your Happy Place, a podcast that explores what it takes to create your happy place and then empowers you to do whatever it takes to get happy at home. I'm Rebecca West, host of Creating Your Happy Place and author of the book Happy Starts at Home, and I'm so glad you're here with us today. Now, a while ago, I watched a TED Talk by a gal named Sinead Burke on her experience in the world as a little person. I was struck by her description of navigating everyday things like using a public restroom or getting coffee, and I found her TED Talk very illuminating, helping me see things that I take for granted, like being able to reach the lock on a public restroom door with new eyes. Ever since, I've been eager to chat with other little people about their experiences in the world and in their own homes, curious to know how or if they've made changes to their own spaces to make living at home more convenient, comfortable, or safe. I'm thrilled to chat with our guest today, a 31-year-old guy who was diagnosed with achondroplasia dwarfism at birth. He's just a regular guy who works for Apple as a technical support advisor, and in his spare time, he's an aviation enthusiast and amateur photographer of all things planes and flying. He says he's always kept his head in the clouds. I'm so excited to welcome to the show, currently living with his wife in a home they just purchased in Leander, Texas, Spencer Frost. Welcome to the show, Spencer. Thank you very much, Rebecca. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. It's going to be really fun. Yeah, yeah. It'll be a good time. Well, I thought what we could start with is that you shared with me that there are two schools of thought within the little person's community. Now, I've always thought of home as a place that we should shape to fit us rather than us adapting to our homes. Like, I've built my whole career on this idea. But I understand that there are these two schools of thought about whether our homes should be refitted with lower light switches and peepholes and counters, or whether our homes should be more of a training ground for adapting to the standard height world outside the front door. So I'm curious, which school do you fall into? That's a good question. I would say I'm very much the latter. So if you came to our house, you wouldn't find too many different adaptations apart from maybe some step stools here or there to rest your feet on and to reach things. But yeah, I, I, we don't have very many modifications and that's kind of how I've always done it or at least growing up too. So, so I'm definitely the, the latter of the two. And you said that you are the first person of a shorter stature in your family, right? So you are surrounded by standard height people? That's correct. Yeah. So as far as we know, going back as far as we can, I'm the first one in the family. Mm-hmm. So. And do you think that influences, you know, because your your home when you were growing up had to adapt or support both standard height people and yourself. Does that do you think that influences whether or not you feel like you need your home to adapt to you? I, I think so. Yeah, it's certainly because you also want to take into account the other people that are living with you. And I've also seen to, you know, I have friends who they aren't the only little person in their family, for example, and they, their house is sometimes laid out a little bit more differently, or there's maybe more, they'll run into more lower counters or more lower cabinets than, say, I would have. But again, it's taking into account everyone who would have to access it. Right. Well, and that's not any different from any couple trying to live together, any family trying to live together. Everybody's going to have different needs, whether or not we're talking about different heights or other physical or emotional adaptations too. Exactly. It's no different really, to be honest, because, and not only for dwarfism, but for any other kind of, you know, disability you might have that would require an adaptation or mm-hmm. maybe, maybe not a disability, maybe just a, you know, preference in terms of if we're talking about design. So yeah, it's just kind of 
more so it's very individualistic i think the approach because you know i've definitely seen both heard from both sides and there's good arguments for both on other side too and i think it's important for us to always have you know start these conversations by recognizing that a community of people who have something in common, like being shorter in stature or owning dachshunds or whatever, doesn't mean that everything else is the same across that community. You have one thing in common, but otherwise you're going to have very diverse views on the right answers, the right solutions, the right needs for everybody. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There is a certain certain extent where kind of the LPA community does kind of create its own culture. Mm -hmm. Just in terms of where you kind of go through the same struggles and everything and we can bond over that. But, but you do have a very diverse background, you know, all different um, walks of life. So yeah, it's, it's good because it kind of, you know, I think we thrive on the diversity, diversity aspect because you kind of also see not only can we connect with, you know, people who also have dwarfism, but also see how it would play into or affect um, someone from another background, nationality, race, creed, you know, religion, all, all that stuff. So, right, absolutely. When you were a kid growing up, you, you know, we all only know what we grew up with. We kind of assume that's normal for everybody. But what times did you ever feel like you were struggling in a way that your other family members weren't, and you were felt really frustrated by that with your physical environment? Sure. Yeah. I, I think every little person will encounter that at some point. I think not so much in my home or in our home, but I did encounter that quite a bit at school. Now, now I will say that there were many, many efforts and the, the, I had a great level of support from the school district and from the teachers I had. And so I even had some adaptations that were made for me at school. But probably once I got out of the house is when I experienced it the most often because it was, you know, kind of just different. (laughs) Right. I'm curious because that's actually what Sinead's TED Talk is about, too. It's the experience outside of the home, you know, navigating airports, navigating Starbucks, navigating these public restrooms and stuff. Now, the heights of things when you buy a normal house versus walk into any of these public spaces are all the same. I'm wondering... I, I'm, you know, I'm trying to see through eyes that are not my own, but I imagine that just by being in public, everything is just a little bit more fraught, right? Because then you're, when you're in your home, it's safer. There's no fear of embarrassment, but when you're outside of the home, I'm guessing that possibility of embarrassment and that struggle between, for, from, from yours perspective of, do I ask for help? And then from standard height people's perspective, do I offer help? Mm-hmm. There's so many feelings around that. How do you, how do you navigate that? And what, what are your thoughts around navigating that? So I think it, it, initially it was kind of go out and, you know, just do what you can and try not to ask for help unless you absolutely need to. And, you know, just tackle it. Now, as an older adult, I've learned that there's no actual, there's nothing actually wrong with asking for help if you generally need it. And you shouldn't have to feel ashamed by it or afraid to do it. So I'm kind of more, more relaxed. Now I will still go to great lengths to try to not have to if I can. But if I reach the point where, okay, it's going to be something, yeah, I need to, you know, get Something like I'll give you a recent example. So last time I went to the grocery store on my own, you know, we had my wife and I had a, like a list of things, and there was one thing, of course, it's on a top, on a high shelf, and I'm like, okay, I could go and bug 
someone in because I was I was also the only person in the aisle at the time because mm-hmm. I was midday on a Thursday, <laughs> and I was like I could go bug someone in another aisle and make it a whole thing or. If I come back home, I'm gonna need to go back out later because we're gonna need it for something else. Yeah. So I just kind of, you know, just go ask. And and you know what? Rarely ever encountered any pushback from it at all. In fact, I can't even think of a time. And yeah, so people are generally just gonna be like, oh, of course, let me help you with that and go grab it. So yeah, but it's kind of it took me a while to get over that, you know, being able to push myself to be like, it's okay, just go ask. You know. Well, and especially in our American culture, independence is such a high value, right? It's this marker of being a grown-up, like I can do everything by myself. So it's so embedded in our culture. And so to have to navigate the world and still feel really strong and capable and independent while knowing when to ask for help. I mean, that's something that we all need to navigate, in fact, because nobody can do everything on their own. But when it's so counter to the culture that we're brought up in, I think it can have some more emotional obstacles and barriers than maybe there should be. Right, for sure. And I think that's actually one of the core thoughts on the the second of the two design perspectives that we talked about. like The training ground. <laughs> yeah. So basically your house is just exactly how you would see the world outside in terms of heights and measurements, because it's like you're also training in that environment and this is how it's going to be when you go, when you leave. So what can we what can you practice with what you can can you do where are you gonna what's gonna happen when you encounter a high countertop mm-hmm. and what are you gonna do to navigate it are you gonna get a stool are you gonna ask for help are you going to and yeah so exactly i think that's that's really the cornerstone argument to that side of it is is uh kind of preparation which reminds me because you're not a father yet but you are thinking that having children is coming down the road relatively soon yeah, we would like to, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So as the idea of being a father and helping somebody that may actually, you know, you actually, I don't know if it's 50-50, I don't know what the odds are, but you may have a child with dwarfism or you may have a standard height child. As you think about that, as you think about navigating, I, I'm actually curious from both perspectives. First, if you have a child with dwarfism, what is it that you want to help them do and how you know, when you're when they're growing up in the home and navigating the outside world, what do you want to share with them that maybe you didn't get from your own growing up experience or things that you did get that you want to make sure you really help your kids have as well when it comes to mm-hmm. this experience? Yeah, so that's a good question. So I would say, well, for starters, for us, for my wife and I, from when we do have kids, it will be a 50% chance that they will have dwarfism. So that's mm-hmm. accurate. And also, as far as how I kind of see that playing out for our kids is if they happen to be a little person or, you know, have any sort of other, you know, disability or need that needs met, being met, I would say I would kind of like to take this the same approach that I had. So my parents are amazing. They've been very supportive from day one, still so are supportive in, you know, anything that me and my family needs, but they were also, we did have some things growing up where, you know, was different in our house. Like, for example, I remember probably the easiest one is wherever there was a light switch, there was also a light switch extender. So it covered the light switch and then there was a plastic lever that came down. And then so you could reach down at the lower lever and that would move the switch above it. Hmm. And so we had those all over the house so that I could turn on, turn on and off the lights. 
And so we had some ad adaptations in place and of course the stools and everything you need to get into counters and whatever, but that was basically it. And I, and I appreciate that a lot looking back because it did help me kind of, you know, test my limits and know, okay, this is probably something I'll need to ask for help for if, if I'm at a friend's house or if I'm at work or something, mm -hmm. or this is how I'll approach it if I get to somewhere that's out of reach. And I really appreciate that. And I'm glad that in that respect that we didn't just say, well, let's just make the whole kitchen lower or whatever. I would like to see us take that kind of approach with our kids if they have dwarfism, especially because the the other advantages that, that they'll have with us as parents is that they also have firsthand perspectives as well, which, and my parents did an amazing job with this, but they had to navigate. Right. They weren't, they weren't fi a physical role model for yeah. you. You were the, you were the solo right. person. And, yeah. they, and they kind of learned as I did for some things. I mean, they found out that I had dwarfism the day I was born. So, wow. so it, it was kind of, they had to learn really quickly and they did an amazing job and we're great at it, but I already have kind of all that in place and we're not going to be rushed to be like, oh no, what do we do? Right. So, so it's going to work to our advantage, I think, but I would still like to emphasize that whatever we can, obviously you don't want to make your kid uncomfortable or not in, feel like you know their home is in the place where it's safe and mm -hmm. they are loved and can get all the support that they need. But I would like to keep the same kind of mindset of, we're going to keep everything kind of mostly the same, except for more obvious choices like light switches. And, the, and then we'll just together work as a team to kind of figure it out for what's comfortable for them. Yeah. I'm curious, thinking of children versus adults, as you grew up, because in, in some ways you end up having as an adult a lot of the same adaptations that you would have for any child, right? Having a, a stool at the bathroom counter you would do for any Right. child growing up but at some point there's this bridge where your friends don't need those adaptations anymore and you now do so i'm curious when did you start really noticing a shift between you and your friends when did it become it's not just we're all kids and we all have the same stools and yeah. then you saw that change what when would that happen and what was that like for you yeah so i think it was probably midway through like grade school and so probably around like third, fourth, fifth grade, started seeing some differences because, you know, kids are starting to grow and some are tall, taller and different heights and whatever. And, but I was still having, I was still using stools everywhere I went. I had a special chair that I was using to give me proper back support at my desk. And then I think the biggest kind of, where it really kind of took off was like middle school, high school. Mm -hmm. Because then it's just like everybody else is off the races, so to speak, and you know, no real adaptations there needed. And then, really, I didn't need a whole lot either myself. But it was more so just kind of. There's a lot of things you want to do in high school. You want to play sports. You want to be in band. You want to, you know, do all these high energy extracurricular things. And you really start to kind of see, okay, there's a difference in physical ability to a degree where it becomes far more apparent. So I think it's kind of progressed as I got older, but I think it was probably start around, yeah, about that early, those earlier school years. Yeah, I mean, and, and puberty is hard to navigate no matter what your situation is. Those are tough years. Exactly, yeah. So yeah, yeah. So that was all, that's all, on top of all those, that, that changes, then you've got the, 
puberty aspect as well. So yeah, right. It's, it's a big, big changing time. I'm glad you survived. I'm glad we all Thank survived. You. Yeah, yeah. I understand that you actually have experienced some homes that were fully adapted for little people. Mm-hmm. When you, when you were in um, that home or those homes, what were some of the best adaptations that you saw? Some things that you were like, wow, this really does make this more pleasurable or easier or safer or whatever. Yeah. So I actually, the one I'll recall, so I have a family friends um, of ours who, I mean, we go way back and their whole family is, they're all little, little people. And they had, when I went, I remember as a kid going to their house and we lived closer to each other than we do now, but we went over there and yeah, all the counters lower, you know, like, ramps at the, at the door so you're not even worrying about the steps up and down and everything's one level and you know all these different things and it was just as a young uh you know, young kid it was just amazing because you're like oh my gosh this is the first time i've ever been to a place where it's like totally built for me yeah and it's like i'm king of the castle here so yeah so it was really kind of cool and i think the draw for me at that to that kind of setup is really just how at peace you are like you don't have to worry about like your strategy of, okay, navigating the home, navigating your day to day. And it's just kind of, it's all built for you. So just go with it. So, but again, that kind of goes back to what we were saying before. It also takes into account if you have more people with similar needs, in the same home, then that's going to factor into it way more. Yeah. I, I'm sure that if my, if I wasn't the only little person in the family and say my sister or, or maybe my, one of my parents or both my parents all, were also little people, then I'm sure we would have seen some of that flesh out into our home as well. Sure. But yeah, but it was, it was, it was kind of just really eye-opening and, and cool to think that one, it's possible to do those things. And then two, how good it feels to have something where, or have an environment where like it's designed with you in mind. Yeah. Absolutely scaled to your body and, yeah. and just uh-huh. making things just a little bit easier because everything right. in life is hard already. Speaking of life, you know, we go through these different chapters. And when I work with our design clients, I notice that depending on the chapter somebody's in, they have different needs from their home, right? So like, say a parent who has a bunch of kids at home and they're a full-time parent, but they're also full-time working, like there's so much chaos that they need simplicity in their home. And then I also see like in the empty nesting years and the retiring years where things are a little bit calmer, a little bit simpler, they might have more energy in their home. They might be really focusing on entertaining rather than creating quiet, calm spaces. I assume that that's going to be a part of your story as well from the perspective of aging, having children, being a child, the needs that you're going to have are going to be different too. And I'm thinking about when it's time to finally age in place, which is like 50 years off for you. But I imagine that well, we'll have to get back on the podcast and find out. Right. We'll do another episode. Right? <laughs> but I am thinking that the aging in place experience for a little person needs to be as carefully considered as the aging in place experience for a standard height person. Because, you know, climbing up onto these crazy high toilets, for example, that are built for wheelchair experiences are not going to be helpful for somebody who's aging in place, but is short. Is this part of the conversation at all when you think about, when you talk to people who are aging? I don't know if you have any experience of, within your community, how we make spaces that work for the long period of our lives, the long term of our lives. Yeah, yeah. So I'll tell you that I haven't had too many conversations on that directly. And I think part of that is to be just because, you know, I 
like I said, I, I'm the only one in my family. Yeah. So, but but I ha- it has occurred to me. So so one of the things that and not just with achondroplasia, but all types of dwarfs at different stages, there's going to be different likelihoods or, or chances of some other down the line medical concern that you'll have to either watch out for or, mm. or ultimately address. And I think for some of those that also will increase as you get older. Right. So that's and, and that's, you know, can be said about really any person. Absolutely. Can, but especially for us. And so so it is something it's not something I give too much thought about, but yet because you know, I'm hoping that those those are down the line. I but but I think it will eventually you know, be a concern and maybe we'll see a trend where, or the trend kind of shift and maybe we'll want to make the home maybe more back to like the first school of thought where it is more accessible because the need is greater, that kind of thing. I'm curious, you were talking about things that obviously extend far beyond the little person community. And I'm curious what it's like to be part of a community that is sort of, what do I want to say, used as an example, right? There are these TED Talks and other things that say, you know, my disability or my condition, my experience is not meant to be an inspiration for you. This isn't meant to be something that, you know, this is just, I'm just a human. Please stop trying to make an example out of me. But at the same time, there is this deep curiosity about cultures and communities that aren't our own. And there's whole shows around little people, right, on TV now. How do you feel about the balance between trying to speak up for your community, but also just trying to be a normal person? Like, what has your experience around that been? Yeah, so I I will say that, right, there are a lot of, there's been a lot of TED Talks, there's been a lot of shows, there's been, you know, a lot of different ways to to learn about the uh, little person community. And for the most part, I think it's great because, you know, you want a certain level of awareness because the problem is, is that there are still a lot of prejudices and things that the little little person community experiences on a day to day that should they should not have to deal with. And the way that that's been reduced over years of time is awareness. So mm-hmm. and I think so I think that those are important. But I do also agree with like the thought of, hey, don't make me out to be some sort of hero or some kind of, you know, saint, because I'm coming at you with my <laughs> dwarfism and, and saying how, you know, all these things that I've championed and accomplished. I, I do think there's a, a line there too, because you want to basically also, as you said, under, make everyone understand that we're just trying to get through life like everybody else. Mm. And we're just normal people. I've often said to, to my friends that the greatest compliment to me or the greatest thing that I have always felt is nice is when they forget that I'm a little person. So I, I'll give you an example of like my family's done this, my friends have done this. But so if I'm like walking with a friend or we're going somewhere and we're just kind of walking and talking, chatting as we go, and all of a sudden they may turn to the right and go because they're walking forward and they're talking to me, but then they turn to the right and go, wait, where'd he go? And I'm like behind a few feet trying to catch up. And they've been talking this whole time, not realizing that we're outpacing each other. Right. And, but they've been my friend or family member for years, you know, and it's just something that they just kind of just casually forget about. But to me, that's that I take that as like, it's, it's awesome. And I love it because they've now seen Pat, the, the dwarfism isn't a thing for them anymore. Right. 
they're they're not making that change specifically because they don't see me as any different from anybody else. So and then, so there's always that moment of like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, I should know better. Like, no, no, it's it's fine, honestly. I I, I actually like that. Obviously, I wouldn't want to be running behind them all the time, but <laughs> but I lo- it, it, it's it's a special thing for me to see that happen, and I, I recall it a couple of times for you know because it's just like you tell you can tell at that point they're just looking at you and they're not defining you by the dwarfism right and that's what i think we try to do is hey look dwarfism is a thing it's real people struggle with it just like there are other things to struggle with in the world too many others but we're here to tell you it's real it's a thing be mindful of it but don't define us by it yeah and i think that's kind of where the line is do you think that one way and, and this is if this is not accurate, please say so. But do you think that one way that people could keep it in their mind is the same way as if you had a friend who broke their leg? So if you had a friend that broke their leg and they have one of those cute little scooters, obviously you're going to be a little bit more accommodating. You're not going to go as fast down the street with them or you're going to offer yeah. to get something off a shelf. But you don't you don't suddenly start thinking this person is anything other than a human with a broken leg. You don't start thinking that they are stupider or slower or that they're let more helpless, you know, all the things that people sometimes go through their mind when they look at people of different capabilities. So would would that approach just thinking this person has I would treat this person just like if my friend broke their leg, I'm going to be a little bit kinder so that I'm not running ahead of them, but that's it. Do you think that's a way to think of it? Well, I think how more normally I would, well, in a way, yes. I, I just think that, like what comes to mind when you say that is, you know, I've heard, I've said this and I've heard a lot of my friends who are also little people say this, but because they ask that sometimes we'll get a question of, well, what's different for you or like what? What are some of the things you can can't do? Mm-hmm. And the general response you'll get from me or from others in, in in a lot of cases is we can do everything that you can do. We're just gonna have a different way of doing it. Hmm. So I can go up da- I can go up downstairs. I can, you know, go for a walk, jog, run, I can lift things, I can reach things, you know, I can do everything that you can do. I'm just mm-hmm. gonna do it a little bit differently in some cases to make it work for me. Yeah. And I, I think that's probably the best approach that I can think of because it that's speaking to the fact it's not actually it's not broken. It's not broken and it's, yeah. it's also not limiting. So if you were able to get people on that thought process where, oh yeah, Spencer, he can do anything that you ask him to. It just either he's gonna do it a little bit differently than you may have thought, or it might take him a little bit longer, but he's gonna get it done. You know? I love that. Yeah. So, so I, yeah, that's usually where I would go with that. And then also too, I, I, I've heard that I'm reciprocated from at least a few people. So, well, and I'll tell you what, if anybody wants proof of that, if they have any doubt, the, I wish I could remember her name right now, but there was a little person on two episodes of the amazing race hmm. blew me away blew half the other contestants away. I mean, if you have any doubts about little people being able to do everything standard height people can do, watch mm-hmm. that episode. It's phenomenal. So good. Yeah, yeah. There's there's definitely a lot of, you know, and they've not only been inspiring for people who don't know what much about the little person community, but also for people who are in the little person community, such as myself. Yeah. So, yeah, and I think that's cool because, again, in that kind of situation, they're out there, they're doing, they're running the race, they're, you know, lifting the weights, they're doing whatever, but they're not doing it with a giant banner that says, hey, I'm a little person. Right. They're, they're like, just doing oh, it. 
they're tying, yeah, they're showing up, they're tying their laces and they're like, let's just go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. representation is pretty important. I think we would all agree. How has it been with Game of Thrones and all of these things that have put l at least one little person highly in the spotlight? Right, right. Yeah. So, <laughs> and I will say that, so Peter Dinklage, yeah. the actor in Game of Thrones, I will say that he is, in my opinion, probably as far as the entertainment industry goes, like he's doing it right. He's he's not one of the person, the people who, you know, is kind of like, you know, trying to find the quote unquote, like little person roles. Like, right. Not at all. Trying, yeah. And trying to uh, basically make a role for his stature. He's like, no, I want the, you know, give me just like any other role that you would give. Uh, you know, a taller person, and even like outside of Game of Thrones, I've even seen. We, we just watched one of his other movies last night or a couple nights ago. It's on Netflix, and he's like some crime boss, you know. And, <gasps> oh yeah, we watched that. Yeah, and that was powerful. Yeah, and he's just like in charge, and nobody messes with him. And yep. and it has nothing to uh, do with dwarfism. It's just yeah, and it's not because he's 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 a little person. It's just mm -mm. he's that's his character. And he did an amazing job. And so I think he does it well. There will, I will say, I think in my opinion, uh, my personal opinion, there's a line where, where the entertainment industry goes too far, where, okay, it's more about, like, you want to stop just, like, you want to stop where it's basically like an advocacy thing or showing, you want to stop before it leaves that and goes into something like, okay, now this is kind of a more, circus act kind of thing you want to you want to still stay in that respectable kind of like peter dinklage kind of zone where it's you know you're showing your skills and you're showing that you can do anything that anybody else can do and i'm assuming that there's probably some contention within the community too like let's say somebody does want to play a traditional circus act show pony kind of a role which so many little people were put in that position over the decades past is there some argument within the community like don't play those roles because they're going to play into these stereotypes but i'm sure some people are like a i just want to be famous because there's <laughs> that's true in every single community or b they're like i really want to play this kind of a role so i'm sure it's it, there's a lot to navigate for every single person within this community and finding their own way to be a part of the world Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think one of the the things you also have to be careful on in the reverse is, you know, it's also kind of your own freedom to seek out what role, what job and what position that you want to do mm -hmm. as well. So there's a, kind of a line there for the folks who may uh, be in those kind of roles. And you don't want to also infringe on um, their ability to go and do that. So, so yeah, I think it's it's a balance it, it's for sure. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, coming back to your own home for a second, the one you guys just bought, sure. are there any adaptations that you plan to put in place, either permanent or, t or temporary? So the only other thing that we're thinking of currently, just to give you an example. So this is actually a thing that my mom found when I was growing up that I loved. So the only thing we're thinking of is putting a false drawer underneath the cabinets below the sink so that when you pull it out, it's not a drawer, but it's just a step. Yeah. And so you don't have to bring a stool to the kitchen with you every time, but you just pull it out, step up on it and, you know, use the sink. One year, I think it was in 
uh, middle school or so, my parents like remodeled their whole, whole kitchen and they put one of those in there. And so I never had to use a stool in the, the kitchen at the kitchen sink, which yeah. was awesome. And then when you, you're done, you just tuck it away and no one ever knows because it just looks like a drawer. Yeah. Um, so, and you don't have to lower anything. It's all, it's all there and everybody else in the home, it's not, uh, you know, affected by it. So uh, we had talked about that, putting that in because that's mm-hmm. really the only thing there. And then the only thing we do differently is, and I've done this for ages, but I, I've designated when we moved in, I designated the cabinet for me. So I have a assortment of cups, bowls, plates, you know, things that are just down in one low cabinet. Mm-hmm. Just enough to like, you know, so if I'm here by myself and I don't want to get the step stool out and or the two step and go up into another cabinet, I can be lazy and go to the bottom. And, and I've done that for, for years, at, yeah. you know, living on my own and also before that with my family. And uh, so we've, I've done that too. It's not really an adaptation built in. It's just a strategy. No, I think that's and, exactly what an ad- adaptation is. It doesn't yeah. have to be a permanent thing to be a smart thing. Right. That's true. That's true. Yeah. But I think everything else, that's the only one we've got on the radar at the moment. But it's also a brand new house for you too, so you're probably it's probably gonna unfold over the few next. Yeah, we months. just moved in. We're not even in a month in this house, so I'm sure things will come up as we go. Uh, right now, everything's still new, and like, oh my gosh, like you know. So we're still trying to draw out the plans, but yeah, uh, something else might come down the pipeline later. That is awesome. Before we wrap up, I'd like to take a moment because I know some of our listeners have confusion around the little people community and like what to call people. So could we just take a second to, to identify the right terminology if somebody is engaging with a little person in the world? And if you would like to touch on what not to say, that's also fine too. So that's a good question. Before I get to the terms, I'll tell you a funny story. So I was in California. Well, my parents live in California. And, and once I got done with college and I graduated, I, I, I went to Michigan State. So I went back to California to um, stay with them while I was figuring out what I wanted to do next. And I went and I got a, I went and interviewed uh, for a job at, at a stand-up paddleboard and sailing school down in Dana Point in California. And the gentleman who runs it, who's still a really great friend of mine, and he tells the story all the time. He actually asked me that same question in my interview when I went to go over and interview the jobs. Like, sorry, I just got to ask, you know, what is it called? Is it little person? Is it dwarf? Is it just a person with dwarfism and and my response was i don't care what i don't really care that's more your problem i just go by spencer yeah. you know and then he instantly was like okay when can you start oh. he, just loved, he loved he loved the he loved the attitude and yeah. that's and that's kind of how i think about it now having said that there are definitely some no-go terms the uh, there is the basically i would say that you'd want to avoid at all costs the word midget because okay. midget is used but it's not at all correct it's con- is it con- it's considered slanderous it's slanderous it's derogatory it's, yeah. it's the, the no-go yeah definitely for sure it's unfortunately used way too often in society still and it mm-hmm. needs to be stopped but that's one that's a no-go. Can you tell uh, us, do you have any sense of why that word is so profoundly no? What is it the history of it or, or the, who, who used it, who came up with it? What? Yeah. So I, I am not too well versed on the history of, or kind of where it started or, or where it comes up, but it's one of the more, if not most like derogatory ones that are yeah. still circulating there. So just um, don't use it. That's the, that's the rule. Don't use it. Don't <laughs> okay. Use it. 
but the basically in terms of what you, so if you're talking about the medical diagnosis, you could use dwarfism or the actual type of dwarfism. For example, right. for me, it would be a chondroplasia. Because you said um, that there's actually 200, over 200 kinds over of dwarfism? 200. Yeah. Over yeah. I had no uh, idea. So achondroplasia is the most common, but there's over 200 types. So mm-hmm. if you're talking in a med- from a medical perspective, you would probably just use a diagnosis. When you're talking in kind of a social setting, little person is the best and to go to. You could also, in certain cases, a person with dwarfism is, is it'd be fine too, but mainly it's just a little person. Uh, or, or Spencer. Spencer. Spencer works too. My favorite is just calling their name. <laughs> yes. And that's a good reminder for people. We don't need to be labeling. Yeah. Reflect their, you know, address them as the person that they are, not what they're dealing with. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah. I appreciate your candidness on that. Thank you. Of course, yeah. That's a good question. Is there anything that you would like to leave people with as you're as they're navigating setting up their own homes or their own challenges in life? Is there anything you'd like to leave them with? Yeah, I think I would like to kind of share one of my favorite quotes. And I know this probably gets, I know this is one that's shared a lot, so I'm sure many of your listeners have heard it. But and I'm not actually even sure who said it. I just love it. But it says, everyone you meet, is dealing with something you know absolutely nothing about. So be kind always. Mm. And one of the advantages that we have in terms of talking about and educating people on dwarfism is that it's visible. You can see it. You can't yeah. get away from it. It's there. But there are so many other things that people do struggle with that you don't get to see. Yeah. And people don't even think to consider it as an issue because they can't see it sometimes. So I would just say, like, one thing that the dwarfism has taught me is that respect everyone and make sure that you're also while dealing with your own struggles make sure that you're also concerned of the fact that everybody else is going through something too and i think if we all look through that lens the world will be a lot better off than we are now and uh, yeah just a little life lesson from 31 years <laughs> as a little person so but yeah but i thank you very very much for this opportunity. This is, uh, it's a, it's a great chat and hope to have more in the future. Oh, I'm absolutely honored. Like I said, it's been something that I've been wanting to do for a very, very long time because I think it's important for all of us to try and see the world from other people's perspectives. And yours is one of many that obviously I'd love to keep exploring on this show. I just can't tell you how grateful I am that you shared your time and your perspective with us today. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah. And to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Creating Your Happy Place and that you feel a little bit more encouraged and empowered to make your home your happy place. If you feel stuck, remember that my book, Happy Starts at Home, is a resource for you. It's full of exercises that are meant to help you figure out why your home isn't working for you if it isn't and identify what needs to change. And of course, if you have a specific design dilemma in your home, you can also reach out to my team at Seriously Happy Homes because thanks to the power of the internet, we can meet with you over Zoom no matter where where you live to figure out the next practical steps to creating your happy place. In the meantime, no matter where you call home, I hope it makes you seriously happy. Until next time.